Hi, I'm Dee Reddy, and welcome to Scale by Intercom. Scale is our dedicated content resource on the Inside Intercom blog, where you can find a wealth of materials, including podcasts, of course, that explore how businesses are driving growth through customer relationships. Every second week, you'll hear from guests on a range of topics, from customer experience to sales and marketing, and hear about the strategies and frameworks that they've used to chart new paths for their customers and their companies. This week, we chat to Mad Kudu co-founder Francis Brero. My conversation with Francis covers a lot of ground. We hear how and why they shifted their focus from churn prediction to conversion predictions, the importance of aligning your support infrastructure with customer expectations, and where he sees the distinction between mythical and pragmatic AI. We also hear how Nicolas Cage plays a big role behind the scenes, but that's better told by Francis himself. So let's head over to the studio and hear from him. Francis, you are so very welcome along to Scale by Intercom today. We're delighted to chat with you about your work at Mad Kudu. To kick us off, would you mind, though, giving us a, just a quick bit of background about yourself and, and how you ended up founding that company? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks a ton for having me. I'm excited to be here and to, to have this conversation. I mean, I guess the long story short is uh, I studied engineering back in France and came to the U.S. for an internship at a startup. I was actually supposed to start in Connecticut, but just before I started, they told me the company had moved to California to start raising VC money. So I joined and a couple, I think like eight months later, we raised our Series A with Sequoia, kind of fell in love with the whole startup ecosystem and actually met my co-founders at that company. And essentially one of the things we were realizing is that we were a predictive analytics tool working for a lot of retail companies trying to help them figure out which customers are more have more you know potential than others and what's like the right kind of products to, to surface to them. And one of the things we found was that even though we were doing a lot of predictive and analytics and just analytics in general for our customers, we were doing very little for ourselves and we were not really doing a good job at using data to assess the health of our customer base. And so as I was starting to look at, you know, the tools that are out there to help was that, I mean, that's in the early days of, I think, like Gainsight, Totango, we found that a lot of those tools didn't necessarily have the strongest analytics behind them, but they had like, they had really good processes. So we kind of started Mad Kudu with the idea of figuring out how could we help B2B SaaS companies leverage all of their data to actually better assess the health of their customers Anyway, slowly migrated away from this kind of like churn, retention, prediction play and more towards uh, an acquisition play. Yeah, my next question was going to be about that shift from churn prediction to sort of conversion predictions. Has the events of the last year affected that at all? You know, I think there's been a big shift in focus from, you know, retention is the new growth and, and, and nurturing existing customers rather than capturing new ones. So curious to know if if actually the pandemic has has had a knock-on effect on what you're doing there. I, I wouldn't say that it has on, on our side. I think what's been interesting is to see that the, the teams are typically fairly different. I do think one of the things we've seen is more of a a shift, at least towards product-led growth and and I guess like more product-centric means of you know monetization and, and acquisition which to some extent kind of plays into more of the the CS part and and how to do support, right? Because once people are exposed to the product, you want to make sure that they actually are onboarded properly and understand what's going on in there. 
I think because there's been this big shift on the marketing side of, you know, not being able to run field marketing and not being able to do events and, you know, webinar fatigue, there was a question of how do we actually get people to engage with brands and and with our products and, and things like that. And so what we've seen for a lot of customers is that there's been a strong push towards a PLG approach. And that I think has put support on the forefront again, at least on the on the go-to-market side, uh, because now it's it's raising a lot of questions of how do we make sure the initial onboarding is frictionless and how do we make sure that we're able to provide the right level of support for the right people at the right time. Yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense. And it's actually, it's funny that you should mention webinar fatigue because we met recently (laughs) at a webinar, which was around Intercom's Ultimate Guide to Conversational Support. I'd love to hear a bit more about your thoughts around conversational support and how you're implementing this at Mad Kudu and what were some of the challenges, I guess, that you were trying to overcome with it? Yeah, I mean, I think conversational support and is is a very interesting topic. It's it's fairly new, and one of the challenges that I run into, I mean, both at Mathkudu and in general, when trying to help our customers, is that you always want to make sure that it stays helpful without becoming robotic, and you know, at the same time, it has to be helpful without being harmful to productivity. And so, I guess there's kind of like two levels of challenges. One of them is really conceptual, and the other one is like kind of a people process. So if we start with the more conceptual part, I always view, you know, these things through the the intersection of this like trifecta of like anything you build has to be desirable, feasible and viable in order to be successful. And I think from a viability standpoint, conversational chat and conversational support has become fairly straightforward, right? Like tools like Intercom do a great job at making it, you know, fairly cheap to do and and it's 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 feasible because it's, you know you have all the tools to to do it i mean then there's a question of how do you make sure you have the right data in there but i think the part to me that's the most challenging is really on the desirable part and making sure that the automation the workflows we're building are actually helping the customer and that they're making the journey more frictionless and not actually adding some friction i think that's one of the things where i see a big pitfall here where oftentimes people are just pushing conversational support because it is feasible and it's more viable than having someone talk to their customers, which I think can be very dangerous because there are some cases where people just, you know, it's a very simple question and conversational support is going to be the right way to assist them. There's some cases where the white glove approach of having, you know, a human pick up the phone, do more discovery and spend more time with the customer is going to be critical. And I do think we live in this, in this era where there's a bit of the, like the famous paradox of choice of not knowing what to do. You know, products out there have more and more features. I mean, if we take even just Intercom as an example, right, there's so many kind of sub products within Intercom. And there's always a question of which are the right sub products that are a fit. Even if I think of Mad Kudu, there's a lot of things we could be using, but there's a question of should we actually be you know, allocating mindshare to using them at our given stage. And I think that's something that, you know, benefits from interacting with another human being, with an expert of intercom and that person telling us, well, look, you know, at this stage, this is going to be better. But then as you grow, this feature might be helpful. And that's where I think the conversational support kind of hits its limits because you're not going to have the same 
you know, bandwidth and interaction and everything is going to be a lot slower and it can be very frustrating on the, on the customer side. Uh, so I think, yeah, from that conceptual part, like really figuring out what is, you know, the right channel to, to help customers is critical. And then if I think of uh, like more of the, the challenges on the people process side, I do think, again, we live in a time where shiny tools are getting all the attention. And I really worry that this could be very detrimental to the customer journey. And what I mean by that is that I'm seeing a lot of people and companies out there who are essentially patching their lack of strategy with an abundance of technology. And so when they don't really understand what the customer journey is or what it should be or where their potential roadblocks, they're just slapping on technology and say, okay, let's just put some conversational support and everything's going to be all and dandy. I don't think that's the right way to approach this. And it's it's really critical to always start from the viewpoint of the customer and identify you know, friction points or roadblocks, potential accelerators where conversational support might be helpful. And, and that's where you want to implement it. Not saying that there's you know, nothing you can discover with conversational support, because I think you can, but in the vast majority of cases, it's important to have a clear problem and to implement conversational support towards that problem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's actually something that Caitlin Patterson, our global director of customer support, talks about quite a bit, actually, is that idea of making sure that at whatever stage of the conversational support funnel you're in, you're getting the right content or the right response to that customer at the right time when they need it. And that could be an automated response, or it could be, as you say, the white glove human approach. I'm curious as well. I mean, you know, as we talked about earlier in the show, you as an organization, you've shifted before from churn prediction to conversion predictions. How has this shift kind of towards conversational support benefited you so far? Yeah, it's been helpful in many cases. I think it in some cases, it's been helpful. In some cases, it hasn't. I think what it has done is it has forced us to figure out what are the different categories of questions and the different categories of support customers are looking for. So one of the things that we've done is, you know, we've run some analysis to figure out, okay, what are questions that come up frequently? And what are questions that actually don't require that much context or don't require very strong, you know, human interaction to get more discovery and more solutioning. And those can be, you know, automated to some extent in conversational support. But I think also it's been a a big question of how do we, you know, align our support infrastructure with the customer expectations? I think that's the the most important part at the end of the day, as I, I keep on saying it, right? It's all about the viewpoint of the customer and understanding the customer journey and adding tools that actually help make that customer journey easier. One thing that we're seeing is that, you know, people are becoming increasingly used to leveraging conversational support when they're looking for something. So that that's a part that makes sense. But oftentimes what we're seeing is people don't know what question to ask. And that's when it's really important to have some kind of a backstop to make sure that you kind of move out of the typical journey on the conversational support to go towards an agent or an operator. Otherwise, you know, the whole system can become very detrimental to the user experience. And actually this happened to me a few weeks ago where I was on a support website for one of our providers and I was trying to change something in our, I was actually trying to add our, a new credit card to our, our billing page. Which should be a 
to enough function to do tree salad herbs. In the first place, it should be easy, right? And in this case, yeah. it wasn't because for some reason it wasn't. And then I went to their support page and I had a very clear question. I just didn't know why it was not working. And the support, they had conversational support and it kind of walked me through like all the questions like, hey, what's your first name? Can we help you? And like they had a list of all the different topics. And essentially I spent probably 10 or 15 minutes going through like back and forth with this support bot when I could have written my question in 30 seconds if I had a form. So in that case, the you know conversational support was highly detrimental to my experience. And, and in other cases, it can be positive. So I think from our perspective, it, it's really forced us to have very deliberate and intentional conversations internally in figuring out where do we want to have automation and where do we not want to? And how do we make sure we have clear backstops that we don't pull people down this kind of endless interaction with a bot that can be incredibly frustrating? Yeah, for sure. And again, I mean, that is something that Caitlin kind of tries to hammer home as as often as possible. You know, on a more general kind of note, knowing that you've pivoted kind of in that direction and, and you've also, as we said, shifted before, do you think it's really important for companies to actually be ready to to shift or pivot like that in a moment? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's, you know, again, goes back to the companies that win are the companies that are able to really adjust to customer expectations. And I think ultimately delivering the right product in the right manner to the people that are trying to get it is what's going to determine winners. I mean, it's, I don't necessarily agree on a philosophical level with like how our society now interacts with Amazon, where we have this kind of need to have everything delivered to our doorstep within five hours of us ordering it online because we're craving whatever this new notepad. But ultimately, I mean, it's, you know, it's a customer expectation and there's really a question of if you're not going to meet those expectations, then you have to over-index on some other customer expectation to make sure that you're going to be able to retain the business. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, you're going to lose that business to Amazon in, in a B2C world. But I think that's, there's something similar there in terms of figuring out how do you support your customers and how do you make sure you're providing the value and making the journey frictionless. Because if not, then that's when you start opening the door for your competitors to come in and and swoop by. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you know, when we did that webinar previously, Francis, you were kind of explaining how Madkudo is developing more proactive and self-serve options to make your product stickier and to kind of increase adoption. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, you know, what I was mentioning that we... We spend a lot of time and we still are spending time looking through the different user interviews we did, mm-hmm. actually watching user sessions in, in Hotjar, kind of like watching sessions one by one, trying to understand where are people struggling? What are the answers that customers are looking for, but not necessarily finding in our app? And then also looking at our like our ticket system to identify what are the you know, frequent questions and using that as a basis for you know, the proactive questions that we're going to ask so that we can use some, you know, basic behavioral patterns to try and identify what someone might be looking for based on what they're doing or what page they're looking at, but also knowing what are typical types of questions that that customers might have. Because like most companies, we have the 80-20 rule of like 20% of the total questions actually account for 80% of the volume of questions. And so if we're able to 
do a better job at automating or like making it easier to find the answers to those, you know, 20% of questions, then we're actually solving the problem for 80% of the interactions with our customers, which again, can make the journey a lot more frictionless. So that's where we've been able to make adoption better because we're making it easier for people to get the answers they're looking for and therefore move on to the next step, which is really adopting the product. Just staying on support then for for another minute or two, like, have you noticed a change in customers' preferred support channels since the onset of the pandemic? And how have you managed it? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting one. I I can't say that we've seen a, a drastic change in in the expectation of support from our customers. I think the main thing that we've been seeing is, or the main change, I guess, that we've been seeing, as I mentioned, was more on the acquisition side, where again people have less of this in person, you know, kind of events to to meet up. May it be you know like a rep going on site or meeting up at an event, and so that's where. We've seen an increase in in the need for interactions uh, through Zoom or other you know mediums that can give you a high bandwidth interaction rather than uh, than conversational support. Or in this case, acquisition. I think on the CS side, yeah, we haven't necessarily seen anything that different, but we're still seeing, at least on our side, a lot of customers use kind of our ticketing system. One of the things that's interesting, though, is that now we're we're getting close to a point where it's pretty obvious that when customers open a uh, a ticket via a form, it's indicative of less urgency in the resolution versus when they're pinging us through the conversational support that typically indicates that this is something that's a little bit more urgent. So that's kind of an interesting trend that we've started seeing. I don't I don't think it's related to the work from home situation, but rather from the fact that we're starting to have these two more mature support channels with one kind of being understood as a very asynchronous channel with the ticket system and the other one with an expectation of a synchronous interaction, which, you know, has led to some of the challenges we were talking about. And and one of them being making sure we have capacity to address these, you know, expected synchronous interactions, uh, because otherwise it goes back to being detrimental. Yeah. And actually, I was going to say, I mean, it could, you know, if you haven't seen that change, it could be as simple as you've you've actually done a really good job of anticipating it. And through that proactive support, you're not seeing the demand for it because you've, again, anticipated that and pivoted. Before we continue with today's guest, I just want to take a quick second to let you know about our amazing archive of podcasts. It's full of insights from thought leaders from the worlds of product management, design, marketing and a lot more. People like Megan Keeney Anderson. Megan was VP of Marketing for HubSpot for over nine years. She joined us to talk about how marketers should adapt their customer acquisition strategies in the age of the internet. Internet will rise and fall and go through different iterations. And our job as content creators, as marketers, is to really study that and stay close to it and adapt. You can hear Megan's episode and lots more on intercom.com forward slash blog forward slash podcasts. Okay, let's get back to today's interview. Back in 2017, you wrote a really, really interesting article called Our Automation and AI Bullshit. (laughs) I'd love if you would share your thoughts then as they were with the audience and and maybe, you know, if and how they've, they've evolved in the intervening period. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like to 
to try and find some contrarian views uh, that I, <laughs> I still need to believe in them. But I, I think things have changed. So so back then, one of the, I mean, the, the main point I was trying to make is that there's a very fundamental and, and critical distinction to make between you know, what AI is today and what we would like it to be. And I used to call it the mythical AI versus the pragmatic AI. And one of the things that I, I was seeing, I still see it to some extent today, but like very often uh, I see AI as a hammer looking for a nail and people don't have a clear problem in mind or kind of hoping that AI is going to help them solve anything. So like a good example of that, I, I ran into this product a few weeks ago, product called copy.ai. Super interesting. It basically uses like one of the libraries from the OpenAI project to generate text. And essentially it kind of like generates content for marketers. Super fancy, it's very cute. But you know, ultimately, if you don't spend the time understanding who is your audience, what do they care about? Like, why should they even spend time reading your content? What's interesting about your content? Like, no matter you know how smart and how fancy, how good the words are that the AI is gonna spit out, if you don't deeply understand who the customer is, then it's not gonna solve the problem. And, and that's where, like, that's what I see as the mythical AI, where people hope that there can be this AI that's just going to write the perfect content for every single one of their customers. It's going to adapt the wording based on who they are. Like, there were all these things of, you know, I think a few years ago where it, it would tell you the psychology of your, uh, or the predicted psychology of your prospect to know, oh, for this prospect, you should be more assertive. And for this prospect, you should use more emotions. And again, super cute, but ultimately, you know, people are going to read your email because you've identified like a core pain point and that you're, you know, explaining how you're, you're going to solve it. The fact that you mentioned um, that you use the right words or the right tonage, I think is, is a very small increment and it, it's beautiful. And we all want to believe in the fact that we could, you know, work one hour a day and have AI solve everything for the rest of the day, but that's not going to happen. However, there's like a more pragmatic use for AI if we look at, you know, may it be bidding strategies on, on ads or like stuff, some of the things that Matt Kudu does of, you know, trying to do predictive routing, like which leads should go to your enterprise versus your commercial versus your self-serve funnel. Like these are things that have been identified as a challenge and you have a clear initial process that is starting to reach its limits and this is where you want to use AI to solve it. So I think the thing that has changed to, to answer the original question is that the market in general has matured in its understanding of what AI is. I, I'm seeing people be more educated and have more realistic expectations around what AI does. I think, sadly, because a few folks out there have been burnt by AI vendors and they bought these things hoping that it would solve you know, everything. I mean, the, the, the simple example, I mean, this is like not a fun story, right? But uh, it was Anderson MD that, you know, invested millions in a contract with IBM Watson. And, and they very early on started saying, oh yeah, we're going to cure cancer with this like IBM Watson AI because we're able to scan through all the medical papers and all that. I think it was like a $60 million contract or something like that. And they basically pulled out after a few years realizing that it it just didn't work. And I think these kind of events had a massive impact on the market, realizing like we have to tone it down a little bit and we have to be realistic in how we approach uh, AI. To, to some extent, I see a parallel with today kind of 
blockchain and DeFi, where I would consider them to be the new AI in the sense that everyone is throwing it everywhere without fully understanding what it does, like, you know, how it does it, what the current limitations are, but it's a very hot topic. And I mean, it's great, right? We're in that phase where it's like mass exposure, people are excited about it, and that's going to lead to more education. Unfortunately, it's going to lead to a couple people like kind of burning their wings because they're going to believe in it a little bit too much before doing their research. But over time, we're going to understand, you know, that system better. So I think, yeah, AI is in a much better place than it was back then. I still think there's a lot of BS out there. And I still think there's a lot of data science teams within organizations that are building AI models without fully understanding why they're building them. And, and that I think is a, is a problem for organizations. Yeah, it, the way you describe it, actually, Francis, almost makes it sound like tech's version of of alchemy, this idea that you can turn data into gold. Yeah. But it's it's parts of it, you know, that idea that perhaps AI could be more intuitive to human emotions than a human being kind of sounds like an impossible proposition or not necessarily something that we would want to see happen. Have you noticed any changes in how you think about it over that last year, over that period of the pandemic? I don't think on, not necessarily on my side. And I think the, I'm not sure COVID has changed as much as I think the regulation has. One of the things that's been really interesting is to see how GDPR, CCPA, uh, which is the kind of Californian version of, of GDPR, that is bringing up a lot of really good questions, right? Because it, it's starting to question how do we think about models, even philosophically, right? So one of the questions is, if I train, I, I train a predictive model with a data set, if one of the people that you know, generated data that was used in the training of the model decides that they want their data to be forgotten. Do I consider that I need to retrain the model without their data? Or basically how disconnected is the model from that individual user's data? And that has led to some, I think, like broader questions. And, you know, I guess like more simply, it it brings up a lot of questions around how we use AI in person level versus account level, like basically where does it get creepy? And the typical example I give is it's the same thing that, you know, a good salesperson would do. Like a good salesperson is going to do pattern recognition based on, I mean, it's not always the best thing to do, but it's what they do, right? Based on how you're dressed, how you talk, how you stand. And and based off of that, they're going to determine what kind of a customer you are. The, the worst thing that could happen is if you walk into a store and this sales rep you've never met in your life starts asking you about how your trip was with your kids five weeks ago. That's super creepy. Yeah. And, and that is like, to some extent, I think what people were like getting close to thinking about doing with AI in marketing, right? Where they were starting to say, oh, well, we can go and scrape everyone's Facebook profile. We can look at everything. I mean, there were cases where there were some big issues with Hilton using AI and, and actually like, you know, recommending new hotels based on stays you'd had. And that led to, of course, of course, it has to lead to some issue where someone was there was, you know, not their significant other. And that sent recommendations that were seen by the actual significant other. Anyway, like there's, there's a lot of privacy infringement questions around how we use AI. And I think what's interesting is that if you were to do this manually, you would ask yourself a lot more questions before 
you know, doing that automatically. If you were to write, you know, every single email by hand, like the way you would approach how you communicate with that person would be very different than if you think about it from like a pure AI perspective. And, and that I hope is something that is going to continue. And I think the the privacy regulation is forcing us to think about, okay, like what would I consider privacy infringement if I was writing the email myself and take that level of scrutiny and apply it to anything that you do with AI. Whereas before, I think we were kind of, again, that mythical AI thing of saying, let's just dump all the data from the internet into this gigantic deep learning algorithm. And it's going to tell us exactly how to talk to every single potential customer in the world. Yeah. And it's it's such a good point you make about the distinction between the personal data and say account-based data. And certainly over the last five years, at the very least, I think in general, people like even my own mother have become more attuned to their own role within a data set and what that means. And maybe in, in Europe, as you say, that has been largely inspired by you know, GDP or being in the news so much. Yeah. Um, so to jump back then, I guess, to to the more support side of that, though, for companies that have yet to maybe uh, leverage automation or AI as part of their conversational support framework, what would you recommend as a good starting point and, a, you know, a good place to start so that you don't end up going into some of those pitfalls that you've mm-hmm. described already? Yeah, I would say similar to to what I, I mentioned, I would say start with something that works, uh, that needs to scale and use AI and automation to increase the scale. I think the most important part is to spend time doing user discovery, meeting with your CS team, reading through the tickets, doing all of that you know, discovery work to identify what are the common threads that we're seeing in there and how do we then you know, work on making the process of addressing them more frictionless. You know, ultimately, it goes back to really identifying where will AI have the highest leverage in solving a problem. And typically, that's where I see AI as, to some extent, an evolution of automation more than anything. It's really, you do things at very low scale, and then you realize, okay, I've been doing this like over and over in the same way, so I'm going to start automating it. And then there starts, you know, we start adding a little bit more complexity in terms of, okay, in the automation, I need to have all these rules. And basically AI is, you know, a sophisticated rule engine that can help your automation. I think it really always goes back to starting with the user discovery, meeting with the CS team, spending time and, you know, putting the work in to understand where it is you can have the highest impact and then rolling out, you know, small bits and pieces here and there of like conversational support, leveraging potentially AI to just like increase the scale that you're at. Excellent advice all around. So listen, Francis, what's next? Have you, have you or Mad Kudu any big plans or projects for 2021 that you'd care to share with the audience? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, a couple of big plans on, on our side. I mean, we're, we're excited that we're growing. And one of the big things that we, we're going to have to focus on is, again, if we think of like the, the B2B space, right? So we have a typical kind of champion that's going to be using the, the Mad Crew app that's typically more of a marketing ops person. But we have a lot of either non-admin users or indirect users. If you can think of, you know, SDRs, sales ops, VP marketing, VP sales. And so we're going to have to spend a lot of time understanding what are the expectations of, of those customers? How do they want to interact with Math Kudu because it's going to be very different from the, the admin user on our side and designing an experience that is going to be relevant to them and provide them with the right level of, of answers. 
and a, a core part of that, which goes back to the whole conversation we had about AI, is we're rethinking the UX of our AI and the kind of AI personalities, which I think is going to be you know, a massive topic for us. And what I mean by that is, so one of the typical things that we do with our AI is building lead scoring models. So that's you know determining, should this lead go to sales? Yes, no, to put it simply. Mm-hmm. If, if you think of it from a, a marketing ops perspective, the role of that AI is really a gate. So in the kind of standard AI personality terminologies, it's considered as a police personality. It's literally saying, this lead should go to sales, this lead should not. It's making a decision and you're supposed to act on it. And that's, to some extent, what marketing ops is looking for. If you now look at it from the perspective of an SDR, you don't want to have an AI kind of policing you and telling you, oh no, don't go talk to this lead or go talk to that lead. What SDRs typically want to see and kind of what they're expecting from an AI is more of a buddy type personality. So an AI that's going to give them a competitive edge by telling them, oh, by the way, like this is actually an interesting data point that you could leverage in your outreach, or this is a talking point that you should use. By the way, this lead is probably a better lead for you to work than this one. And so you have to think about the the UX to be very different because if you try to, to push a police-style AI onto SDRs, it's going to be met with a lot of resistance and it's going to create a lot of friction versus actually getting them to adopt something that they perceive because it's designed as something that's enhancing their user experience. So that's going to be like a really, really interesting challenge on our side. And it's something that I think very few companies out there have have managed to solve and understanding, you know, how one AI can actually be presented in different ways to different users. But I think it's really critical for the adoption of AI across organizations. And if that, you know, succeeds, hopefully we can continue the the growth of the company. And that's exciting to me because we have a bit of an internal bet at Matt Kudu that when we, re- we raise our next round and hopefully we'll do our first user conference, we have a bet that we want to have Nick Cage come and be the keynote speaker. So that would be a, a lifelong dream that would happen. Well, that actually brings me really neatly to my next question, Francis, which was one that we actually normally ask people in our other podcast, Inside Intercom. But I just thought it would be a fun one for you. You mentioned Nick Cage there. We usually like to ask people if there's someone who inspires them or they aspire to. Tell us about Nick Cage and what role he plays in your life at Mad Kudu. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Nick Cage is, a, is an interesting one because this whole thing started as a, a joke, turned into a meme internally, and now is actually to some extent a core part of our, of our culture at Mad Kudu where every employee in their onboarding, like one of the questions they get is, what is your favorite Nick Cage movie? <laughs> I think the part that I really like about Nick Cage is that to some extent, he's, you know, one of the most polarizing actors. I just always find it fascinating to see how people have such strong opinions about about him without necessarily, you know, doing that much research. And I, I find that it's a good, to some extent, it's a it's a good representation of our polarized society today without actually, you know, being a touchy subject, right? Nobody wants to talk about politics. Nobody wants to talk about these difficult things. And I think he's a good way to show that polarization on something that, again, is not offensive. And also what I I really like about him is that he takes a very contrarian view on acting, right? Like the whole, one of the, the main things that he says is that we have this kind of conventional wisdom today that 
actors should be regarded as, you know, good representations of real life. And so we today will deliver, you know, Oscars or whatever to people who, uh, Academy Awards, to people who manage to make you feel like, you know, the movie is actually reality. And you, and that I think is is something that people don't necessarily challenge today, but, you know, there's no reason why that would be the only way of doing it. And there's been a couple interviews that I thought were really interesting where he said that if you think of how, you know, actors at the opera actually play, like we could think they overplay, but the reason they do that is because they're on stage and some of the people are very far in the back of the audience and you want them to understand what is going on. And so you have to portray the emotions in a much more grandiose manner. And you have to make sure that even the person, you know, at the very back of the audience is going to be able to understand what emotion you're trying to transmit with your movements. And and that's very codified and, and is very acceptable. And, and there's no reason that that wouldn't be something that's valid from an acting perspective in a movie. And, and sure, it goes against like the standards today, but there's a question of like, why are those the standards and, and should they be? And I think the, the good part there is that you don't have to agree and you don't have to enjoy the art, but I think it does bring up a good question that there are a lot of things that we take for granted and that we kind of accept as being the right way of doing it. But sometimes it's it's just interesting to, to ask that question. And I know there was like someone who, you know, I, I think a good reference was saying that Nick Cage is, you know, to cinema, what free jazz is to music. And free <laughs> jazz just, you know, it does break a lot of the standards of, you know, pop music or how we, you know, listen to scales and how we expect improvisation to work on top of, you know, the two, one, five scales or, or whatever. And, but there is something interesting to it. And I, I think it just like, opens up our, our perspective a little bit. And so I, I find him really interesting for that. And I think what I like is that it, it's very deliberate. And the more you read into it, the more interesting it becomes. So I think it's a good way to get people to become more curious and to question some, you know, yeah, to question what they take for granted. I love that. And it also makes people maybe a little bit more comfortable with agreeing to disagree which is is something that I think is really important for work and just life in general. Curious though, has any are people allowed to use Fast Times at Richmond High? Because that's the only film I know of where he's credited as uh, Nicholas Coppola instead of Nick Cage. Yeah, yes, they can. Absolutely. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> it is a classic. So listen, this series is all about hearing how companies scale, Francis. But before we go, I would love to know if there was a key event in your career that helped you scale professionally. Yeah, I think one of the things that that helped us a, a ton at MathCrew and helped me professionally was in the early days, and something I would recommend to everyone, just put in the work with customers. So in the early days, we, I, I would say we were very fortunate to sign Segment as one of our first customers, and they became a customer fairly early after their Series A. And, and you know, they were, you know, they were already a bit of a a rising star in, in Silicon Valley and a lot of the other B2B SaaS companies were looking up to them because they were showing stellar growth. And so what I would do is every week, I would actually go to their office and I would just work from, I, I actually had set up a little standing desk next to the, the coffee machine. And I would just work there every week for one entire afternoon, sometimes even a bit longer. I would meet up with uh, Guillaume Caban, who was their head of growth at the time, and so we would have conversations that were very specific to the projects that we were working on, but we also had a ton of conversations that were more related to questions he had about, you know, how their business was doing, like things that he wasn't sure about. 
And that actually allowed me to get a much deeper view into all the things that surrounded Matt Kudu as a vendor for a segment. It gave me exposure to their sales team because, you know, from the fact that I was there, their reps would come over, we'd have conversations over coffee, we'd just like, you know, chit chat here and there, understand like where they had concerns, what were things that they liked about the product, things that they didn't understand. And that was really instrumental in understanding what were going to be levers of adoption and levers of retention at segment in particular, but then more generally at customers. And today it's a little bit harder to go on site to customers, but I would say the main thing is creating space in your relationship with the customer to make sure that you can talk about things that don't necessarily directly relate to your product and going a little bit beyond what your product does to really understand like what are the other questions that they have that somewhat relate to your space. First off, to understand like how important you might be in the grand scheme of things, but also to really build that empathy and and just, yeah, build that relationship. A lot of good things come uh, come from it. So that was instrumental for us because it really built a strong relationship. It built very, very strong advocacy on the segment side. And that is one of the, the core things that led us to, you know, strong acquisitions uh, afterwards where a bunch of great companies were coming over to Matt Kudu because they were saying, hey, we heard great things from Segment and we'd love to, to do the same with you. So, you know, investing time with your customers is always going to pay back tenfold. Very good advice. And it certainly sounds like it was a game-changing moment for you. Lastly then, Francis, where can our listeners go to keep up with you and your work? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I try to post regularly uh, on our blog. So that would be on madcrew.com. They'll find it. Then they should feel free to follow me on Twitter, or on LinkedIn. On Twitter, I'll I'll make more comments about Nick Cage, about music, and I don't know, like interesting topics in general. And LinkedIn is more, uh, I guess, focused on I guess less polarizing topics and, and more B two B SaaS. Well, as it should be, and I'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes. Listen, all that's left is to say thank you very much for joining us today. I really enjoyed chatting to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Francis. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps people like you find their way to our podcasts. We'll be back next week with another great episode for you. We hope you'll join us.